Uh, Father, we thank you again that we can come around your word and we, we ask, especially in this hour, for a heart of humility, even as we look at other counseling systems, that we would come to our evaluation with humble hearts and appreciation for the truth that you've opened our hearts to see and embrace. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, people that are engaged in misguided systems, that you would be merciful to them and and we would not be proud or arrogant knowing that um, that we are... Uh, recipients of such mercy uh, from you so guide us today uh, the afternoon is long uh, we pray for your mercy even in sustaining us uh, thank you that we can be together and, and build us up now in jesus name amen okay so here's our uh, here's our question uh, number nine says define describe and provide a biblical evaluation of which means every part of your question is going to have what a definition a description and an evaluation so three parts for each one of these uh, different interventions here, 12-step, CBT, biogenic theory, and electroconvulsive therapy. And then uh, we're going to come back at the very end and talk about a case study, number 17, that relates, kind of overlaps with some of our material here. So let's let's blow through this here. Um, I want to spend most of the time talking about a biblical evaluation and uh, I've got lots of resources at the end there for you to glean from if you want to go into more uh, detail on each one of these. But um, I think probably most of us are familiar with 12-step. 12 12-step 12 recovery programs uh, describe a variety of group therapy gatherings. It was started by Alcoholics Anonymous back in the mid-20th century. And uh, the name 12-step derives from the original 12 principles of AA, there are Christian versions of these today. Uh, the most famous, uh, most popular Christian 12-step is something called Celebrate Recovery. Uh, Celebrate Recovery was a group therapy ministry started by uh, a man in um, Rick Warren's church, Saddleback Church in Southern California, and uh, grew in popularity. There are Celebrate Recovery CR groups all over the place. Uh, I've been overseas. I've been in other countries. There's CR overseas. Uh, it, it is very uh, a very popular Christian version of 12-step. Um, again, you're not you don't need to put this in your answer, but just by way of familiarizing you with some of these 12 steps, you've heard these before. Uh, we admitted we're powerless over alcohol. Our lives have become unmanageable. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us. Made a decision to turn. And uh, the little phrase there is the one we often think of, God as we understood him. And uh, while we might commend turning to God, we recognize that um, we want to be turning to the true God, not a God of our own imagination. And it's interesting, there's some, uh, there's some disagreement even amongst uh, the men that started AA, why they chose to do that language. I, I don't... I don't know for sure why, but uh, I know like today it's not uncommon for uh, folks in an AA context to say, well, you may not believe in God, but you can believe in the higher power of having a restored family. That's your higher power. So you're, you're looking to this idea of having a restored family. Um, so you can invent God as you want him, right? Moral inventory, admitting to God ourselves and another our wrongs. Um, eager to have God remove the defects, 
ask him to remove them, make restitution, make amends, continue taking personal inventory, prayer and meditation to improve a relationship with God, and then having had a spiritual awakening, try to carry out this, this message to others. And, and you look at that. I'm not sure what copy is on the end there. Um, so, so you look at that and you go, okay, well, that's that, that, okay. That is what it is. Uh, what does this look like in actual practice? You typically have a facilitator. And that facilitator, let's see, get this here. Uh, the participants meet regularly in a group setting. The facilitator kind of organizes things. There's sharing within the group. Emphasis is placed on showing sympathy, listening, being accepting of each other. Uh, one of the rules is that directive conversation or counseling advice is not allowed. It's just a place for sharing and listening. And each participant is usually assigned a sponsor to meet with outside the group. And very often, the way I see this played out is there's individual counseling that accompanies the group counseling and that group and that individual counseling may be more directive. Um, but that's what we're talking about with 12-step, with AA, with CR. So uh, what are some strengths? Okay, we, we've defined it. We've described it. What are some strengths and weaknesses? Let's do a biblical evaluation. I think we can commend a couple of things here. We, we can commend that sharing struggles with others is better than bottling them inside of you. We can agree with that, right? That, that that getting it out, talking to somebody, rather than struggling alone, is a good concept. At some level, it emphasizes personal responsibility and to make some sort of restitution. We, we think of uh, Zacchaeus when uh, he saw Jesus and was convicted by the message. And uh, Jesus said, oh, by the way, I'm coming to your house this afternoon, Mr. Zacchaeus. And uh, he did. And do you remember what Zacchaeus said he was going to do in light of his sin? What, what did he do? What's that? Yeah, he's going to restore and pay back even beyond what he had stolen. Right? So we, we recognize the idea of restitution is a biblical concept. Taking personal responsibility is a biblical concept. Most groups do promote the need for some sort of help from God and we can say well that may be misdirected but the concept is good right we, we, we want them seeing their need for help from the outside um, there is encouragement gained by learning that others that uh, that other people struggle with sin right I'm not the only one that's struggling there is some semblance of accountability and and often there are you know these these groups are run by caring people and we can say you know what praise God for all those things that that's great and uh, we can thank the Lord for uh, those things. And, and, you know, I was thinking AA in particular, you know, the AA movement and, and other like-minded groups, uh, they've gotten a lot, a lot of drunk people off the road. Uh, they've kept a lot of accidents probably from happening. And we can thank the Lord for that, right? We can thank the Lord that while it's it's a imperfect therapy, uh, God has seen fit to use it for community good um, in that way. Okay, uh, but even with those strengths, um, there, there are some weaknesses here, right? There are some weaknesses. Let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 22. And, uh, you know, there's a lot here, guys, so you guys know the drill. We'll have to keep going. But I just want to 
anchor some of this evaluation in some explicit texts which you will need to make your evaluation. We recognize that not always, but usually these groups are going to promote a disease model of understanding addiction. And even, you know, part of the reason that our culture thinks of addiction using disease language is in part because AA chose a medical terminology and and maybe we could call it medical metaphors to talk about this. There's debate whether, uh, you know, the, the gentleman that started AA actually believed that alcoholism was a disease. Some say yes, some say no. But what is not questionable is that they chose to frame alcohol problems with medical sounding terminology and concepts. And that has helped to purport the popular view that alcoholism and other addictions are actually a disease and not a moral spiritual issue. Look at Proverbs 22 with me and verse 24. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. Why? Verse 25. Or you will learn his ways and find a snare for ourself. We, we need to question the wisdom of getting a whole bunch of people that all struggle with the same thing together in a room regularly. Not because it isn't nice to know I'm not the only one that struggles with this, but because Proverbs is saying, be careful about that. When you get people together um, that are dealing with extreme behavior, especially when you're tempted in the same way, uh, that's not going to be helpful. I remember years ago, um, there was a, a young lady that came to our counseling ministry in her early 20s, and I can't remember what her addiction was, if it was alcohol or drugs or something, but uh, she had court-mandated group therapy right here in Hood County. And so she would go to this court-appointed group therapy, and, and thankfully she had a family member that directed her somewhere to come to our counseling ministry. So a female counselor and myself were counseling her individually here at the church while she had this court-appointed you know, group therapy-mandated uh, thing. And um, i never forget, the meeting she walked in, and go into this group therapy, she met Mr. Wrong. And Mr. Wrong struggled with all the things that she struggled with. Well, guess what? They got together. There was some measure of romantic attraction. And uh, she fell right back into her addiction because he's struggling with it. She's struggling it. They're both coming out of it. And they were having to spend all this extra time together in group therapy. Now, again, I'm not saying that always happens in group therapy, but that's what Proverbs is warning us about here. Just, just tap the brakes. Be cautious about hanging around people like that, lest you learn their ways or be tempted by their ways. We, we would agree that uh, one of the biggest problems with the 12-step model is a self-defined God. That, that's Romans 1. That's what all people do, right? They, they reject the true God of the Bible, and they define God as they understand him to be. That, that's almost the same as Paul's language there uh, when he says they replace the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. You know, instead, they don't acknowledge God or give thanks, but they become futile in their speculations, meaning they just make up God in their own image. So uh, that, 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 that is not something to say is great. That, that's actually um, you know, a big part of why humanity is the way it is. Um, we, we can sadly say uh, in most of these groups there's no gospel, no Jesus. There's an unbiblical view of persons. You say, what, what, about, what about Christian AA? What about Christian 12 style? What about Celebrate Recovery? And the answer is, you have to investigate 
each one of those groups because just because they have a Christian label in front of them, including Celebrate Recovery, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they are purporting a Christian view. Uh, I'm fairly familiar with Celebrate Recovery, and I would say, you know, some of their material is really good. You know, it, it's not at all like AA. I mean, it, it's it's specific. We're talking about Jesus, not God as we understand him. Uh, we're, we're talking about using the Bible, not going out in the world and world's wisdom, right? So, so CR and other curriculums are trying to be overtly biblical in some of the things that we're doing. And we can say, you know what, that's better than classic AA. But the problem with Celebrate Recovery and the problem with most of the recovery Christian recovery programs I've seen is that instead of building a system that is uniquely biblical discipleship, it's like they're taking AA or they're taking the 12-step model and they're trying to retool it into something that's Christian. And while they might make some progress in that, what they really need to do is probably dismantle the whole thing and start from the ground up. Because whether it's CR or Christian 12-step, there are features of AA, features of the therapeutic model in those programs. And uh, I I had a a dear friend, a biblical counselor, who uh, took a position in a church where Celebrate Recovery was a part of the ministry. And so he didn't start it. It wasn't his idea, but he sort of inherited it as a church. And uh, and I said, what do you think, man? This, this, This was the closest I'd ever gotten to it. And he's like, yeah, there's there's some good stuff there, but it's just it's the whole model is tainted with the same psychology that we're trying to move away from in something uniquely Christian. And and if you know Rick Warren, that's not a surprise. I mean, he he loves his community, and and there's some commendable things there. But uh, especially recently, uh, we know that uh, Rick Warren has suffered from significant theological and ecclesiological problems in his church from day one. And sadly, a lot of those weaknesses show up in Celebrate Recovery. So um, what my friend did, what my friend did was he sort of adapted CR and he kind of, this is being recorded, isn't it? Okay, um, that's okay. Uh, I don't, maybe this gets back to, to Southern Orange County. I don't know, but um, he didn't have a choice. So basically what he did is he took the parts of CR that were good and promoted those, and he took the parts that were lousy, and he kind of changed them around. And over time, what he did was he replaced it with basically a, a group discipleship model. So, um, And again, th- th- that's one of the things I've learned is that CR is, is really only as strong or as weak as the people that are running it. So the curriculum isn't great, but I, you can see how it can be used or not used. Again, I'm not here to, to beat up CR at all, but... Um, in its curriculum, it's it's weak in significant ways. Um, sometimes that can be overcome by the facilitator, sometimes not. So I saw a couple of hands. Yeah. Yeah, so Regen is Watermark's uh, ministry. And I, and I think Regen, like, uh, like CR, I'd say Regen is more overtly attempt to build a more biblical discipleship so it's not trying to follow 12 step as much as CR is um, as best as I've understand it I'd say it's stronger but again it comes back to who's using it and why are they using it and uh, th- there are definitely some weaknesses to regen to um, depending on you know, which book you're in and whatnot so b- better and I want to be charitable too I'm not an expert on regen so um, I-, I would say take it on a case-by-case basis yeah another question I thought yeah Celebrate Recovery? 
So Celebrate Recovery was started in Saddleback and marketed as a curriculum that is now used by churches around the world. Yeah, but it started there. And Rick Warren was not the author, but he was kind of like a, a consultant to another associate pastor that really developed the material. Okay, so again, an unbiblical view of persons. I think that's where a lot of these things fall short. We're not looking at biblical anthropology, and it tends to promote moralism rather than Christ-likeness. You know, just just be better, be nicer. Uh, Jesus in his person and work is not always the model held up. So our conclusion, right, there's some strengths, there's some benefits, but 12-step really falls short of what we're striving after um, in, uh, in counseling care here, okay? Got to be done. Okay, all right. Let's talk about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. How many are familiar with CBT? Okay. So th- this is a, a therapy that's been around for many decades. Uh, this was uh, CBT found its origins in um, cognitive therapy and also um, some family systems, some family dynamics. There, there's a background of how it all came together to CBT. CBT is a pretty established model. It's been around for a long time. It's time-tested. And actually, uh, amongst the the sort of secular therapeutic world where there's fads that are always coming and going, CBT has just been kind of this steady, you know, uh, voice throughout decades of of care. Um, If you're not familiar with it, it's a form of talk therapy that seeks to replace what is described as maladaptive thinking patterns with more constructive patterns, which then possibly affect feelings and behavior. So if we think about kind of how the CBT world works, um, right, you've got interaction between these three factors, the thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. What we feel affects how we think and act. How we think affects how we feel and act. What we do affects how we think and feel, and so CBT is recognizing those relationships, and uh, so what we're trying to do in this sort of therapy is we're trying to help people to recognize that their thoughts, emotions, and behaviors are related, that a lot of times struggles happen because people are uh, feeling, thinking, behaving in ways that are not as... um, Healthy, I think they would say that way, right? They're, they're maladaptive, emotional patterns that are unhelpful, behavioral patterns. And so therapy focuses on helping clients develop coping mechanisms for some of those problems, emotional regulation strategies, strategies to change cognition and behavior. And as you're looking at that, you think, you know what? Uh, there's some things there that we would amen, right? I mean, th- th- we, we can say that CBT does correctly recognize that there is a connection between cognition, what we think, what we believe, our attitude, and our emotions and behavior. Uh, CBT is supported by empirical research and is one of the most, quote-unquote, successful treatments for many disorders. I say successful because that's successful as the world defines it, not as God defines it. So CBT is one of your best forms of secular therapy when you know biblical counseling and avert gospel ministry is not an option for some reason. But... Uh, because CBT taps into biblical anthropology and um, utilizes it, well, they're going to see some measure of success. Now, again, without Jesus, without regeneration, without the Holy Spirit, without the Word of God, when I say success, obviously that's going to be very limited. 
but in terms of changing some thinking, changing some behavior, um, what do they say? Uh, uh, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then, right? And, you know, secular researchers live in God's world. And what that means is secular researchers are going to be around and even discover true things about God's creation and how the world works just through God's ordinary common grace. And um, they may not recognize that they're borrowing the Christian worldview, but CBT actually borrows the Christian worldview in a lot of dimensions. It does promote personal responsibility, and it tends to be problem-focused, which we would say is good things. The, The big problem with CBT, as much as we might commend those things, is it lacks a biblical referent. So, so let me ask you this. I think the way you're thinking or the way you're thinking or the way that you're thinking is unhelpful to you. It's negative. It's pessimistic. It's misguided. And I'm your therapist. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you to change your thinking. The question is, toward what? Right? Where's, what's the standard? Yeah, what, what's the source? Um, I might, as the therapist, I might say, well, I think this is a better way of thinking. And I might fall into that good old power positive thinking theology, which is antithetical to scripture. So, so here's the thing. CBT rightly makes some connections between cognition, emotion, and behavior. But because, even though that's correct, they lack a biblical source or standard of reference you're just shooting from the hip in terms of saying, oh, I think you should think about this instead of this. I think you should do this instead of that. It's arbitrary. It's whatever the therapist really believes is a more healthy way of pursuing things. So pragmatism and modern conceptions of mental health often replace biblical standards. And that's a problem. Um, and you know, you've heard this, right? Oh, you're so negative. Oh, you're so pessimistic. You need to believe in yourself. Well, um, being down on myself, condemning myself, yeah, that may not be the right thing to go. But believing myself is a false gospel. I need to believe and trust Christ, not myself, right? And this is often what what therapy does is, um, you know, we we can call it uh, idol swapping, right? We're taking one idol and we're swapping it for another idol. We're taking a God replacement over here, and we're swapping it for a quote-unquote better God replacement. And uh, so that's really the that's really the main thing is the end result is you have pragmatism that kind of drives the train there. There's any not any overt reference to sin, at least they're not going to call it that. Certainly no gospel or Jesus. You say, well, what about what about Christian counselors that practice CBT? Well, they might be able to fill in some of these gaps. But again, because CBT leans more on empirical research than on biblical anthropology. Even when someone's trying to be Christian, the most Christian CBT I've seen still does not look like sanctification. Um, there are features of it, but it, it doesn't look like normal discipleship. So, um, and, and, and it, it does. It, moralism, behavior modification. Doesn't address the heart. And, and at the point that, that uh, you know, I, I've talked to you know, therapists that do CBT and they're Christians. They're like, what I'm doing is the same as what you're teaching. And I'm like, well, let's talk about that. And we talk about it. And, and yeah, a lot of it is the same, but it falls short. And it's like, well, by the time I've dismantled CBT, why not just do biblical discipleship? Why not just do sanctification? God, God's given us the model. 
we don't need to try to adapt a secular model just for the sake of adapting a secular model. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not wrong to say, I think God's model is best. Let's use his. Um, it ignores the noetic effect of sin in terms of um, our, our inability to reason our way to truth. We need revelation, right? Uh, there's no need for the Holy Spirit, of course, as the internal agent of change. And it does not acknowledge the worship dimension of life and the relational nature of true change. You know, b- biblical sanctification is not just about thinking rightly. It's true. It's thinking rightly, but it's worshiping rightly. It's having right desires and affections. It's, um, it, it's bringing my whole heart to align with God, not just my thinking. So, yes, ma'am. Yes, so there are there are Christian ministries that would align themselves with ACBC in terms of philosophy and doctrine who provide intensive ministries for things like addiction or eating disorders. Uh, sadly, there's not a whole lot of them. And sometimes uh, I know the place that uh, Brian Gaines and I tend to send people from this area is all the way up in Washington State. Uh, there's another one uh, near the Chicago area, but I wish there was one in Fort Worth, but there's not. So, um, so yes, but limited. So. Right. Yeah, there are a lot of people. And that's where, you know, hopefully God will work in, in some of your hearts and people here to say, hey, I, I want to go build a ministry because there's a need like that. So, yes, did you have another question? You sure? No. Okay. Yes. Yeah, 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 and I think that's part of why the secular world likes to stay neutral. Is if you take CBT as it is, you can adapt it to whatever belief system you want. And it's sad, but I know a lot of Christian counselors who have created their own counseling system in a way that is quote unquote adaptable to other belief systems rather than being intentionally Christian. Part of that is that their state licensure ethical rules might not allow them to evangelize. And that's a whole nother talk for another day. But I I don't know why we would want to put ourselves in a scenario where legally we can't share the gospel with somebody. I mean, that just that, that's an ethical dilemma that we can talk about sometime. But um, But I do think that trying to stay neutral for the sake of adaptability uh, is not reflective of our gospel commitment, right? We 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 ought not to do that. So, Micah, do you have your? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yep. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and, and that, and I, I know your faith, I know your commitments, and you know, being in the medical community, that that's one community where you have to figure out how do I maintain a commitment to God to share the gospel 
and work that out within the context he's put me in. And, uh, you know, you and Dr. Roberts have to do that, and I know our pediatrician here has to do that and whatnot. So, yeah, I don't know where that line is. I, I think you know that world best, and you know what God calls you to do and, and what you can and can't do before your conscience kind of thing. But what I think we can do, and actually our pediatrician friend here does this a lot, is um, he might say something like, uh, and you know how this is, you know, um, parents go to their pediatrician essentially for parental advice for their kid. And, you know, they might think it's some disease or medical thing. And, and our pediatrician friend's like, actually, that's, a, that's more just a parenting philosophy. That, that's more of a moral thing, right? So what he does when, when he feels like that's not the right context to address it or, or maybe they're rejecting it is he'll make a referral to our counseling ministry. And he'll say, hey, my, my church specializes in helping parents to deal with, you know, difficulties in parenting Here's their card. Give them a call. So sometimes you can make referrals. If they're flatly against it, that's where I think you do the best you can to, to share the gospel and call them to it. And then obviously they're going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. And, and we we I, we tell our guys share the gospel in the first session because you don't know if that first session is the only session you're going to have. And, uh, and maybe they reject it, or maybe you, you plant a seed. You never know how God's going to use it. But, yeah. Okay, guys, um, the next one here is the biogenic theory of mood disorders. So we, we talked about depression uh, earlier this morning and what's called the chemical imbalance. So I'm just going to wave my hands at this because really it's the same material. The biogenic theory is another way of describing the chemical imbalance theory. Uh, the idea is that uh, imbalances in the brain's neurochemistry produce mood disorders, mental illnesses, other unpleasant emotions. Medications are given which supposedly fix those imbalances and restore normal feeling and function. So, uh, okay, there, there we are. What is good about that? Well, what's good is it acknowledges that factors in the physical body can affect emotions and behavior. We know that. Um, the, feeling, the fact that psychotropic medications often lead to improvement in feelings and function seem to support the theory. So we said, well, that, that looks like some evidence that maybe uh, there's some scientific basis to this. You know, the, the big problem, as we talked about this morning with depression, is that chem chemical imbalance is an older, unproven, and essentially abandoned theory of mood disorders. Modern-day neurologists agree that chemical imbalance is too simplistic to explain mental disorders. That's Stephen Stahl. Uh, Stahl says... You know, we, we've not had any mental illness amount to a simple chemical imbalance insufficiency. Um, you know, in any mental illness, any mental disorder. Brain chemicals cannot be easily measured. We talked about that. There's no standard of normality there. So and, and that'd be a, the idea of an imbalance is really ambiguous. The mechanism, mechanism of drugs which supposedly fix imbalances is really unknown. But in a, as we talked about, 50 to 75% of the time, there is some sort of feeling of improvement. Not that depression goes away, but that the person feels better. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's reality. Um, so biogenic theory is built on an unproven, uh, really medically disproven, we can say, premise. And uh, even though it's mainstream in practice, it is unsupported by the medical literature. Now, Scripture teaches that behavior is driven by the inner man, not the outer man. If you've got Proverbs still open there, 
we to turn back to Proverbs chapter 4. And uh, this famous verse, uh, as Solomon ministers to his children in context, and uh, he says to his son in chapter 4, verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence. Your Bible might say guard your heart, right? It's the same, same word there, guarding, watching, be careful, pay attention. With, uh, of your heart with all diligence, for from it, your heart, flow the springs of life. Um, it is, isn't it? It's everything that is significant in my life in terms of behavior, emotion, what I say, what I do, is flowing from that, that real me, that real you, that inner man, the spiritual part of us, uh, our bodies are a part of that. Our bodies are um, connected to our inner man and contribute to our behavior. But our bodies are not the initiators of moral action. They're not the initiators of our behavior. They are the, as Ed Welch says, they are the enactors of what the inner man produces. So, and, and in this worldview, it's, it's a, what we call a naturalistic or materialistic view of people, Right? Uh, we're only biology. We're only glands and neurons and, and physicality. We're only a body. There's no soul. There's no immaterial part of people. And thus, if we're denying that a spiritual nature even exists, we're not going to have a spiritual dimension to problems, right? So therefore, there's no Jesus, no gospel, no salvation, no sanctification. And in fact, when you try to talk about that in the context, your psychiatrist is going to look at you like you're crazy because he's going to say, I'm a medical doctor. I, I deal with things you can study in a laboratory, things you can prove using the scientific method, things that are substantiated by empirical research. You can't go up to the imaging center and have a CAT scan to see your inner man. There's no blood test you can take that says, oh, you're spiritually healthy. right? We don't have that. So we're denying a whole part of our existence there. You guys have seen this before. That's the naturalistic worldview where the brain and the body are all that are, and therefore the problem has to be a brain problem. Medications have to be the solution. And then our body, of course, experiences improved feelings and functions. But what's missing, what's missing is the heart, right? The, the inner man. The, uh, the biblical model of anthropology says there's an inner man and an outer man there. And, uh, and therefore, um, <laughs> you know, chemical imbalance is wrong, not just scientifically. It's wrong because the model for humanity is wrong. It's not a data problem. It's a theory problem. Uh, and that's so important that you see that um, we know this, right? What the researcher is assuming about the nature of human beings completely taints his research and his conclusions, right? His presuppositions, his understanding, his model. Uh, it's not a problem with the scientific method. It's the problem with the presuppositions that he brings about human behavior and functioning to analyze the data that he's seeing and make conclusions on the data. And uh, you know his conclusions are wrong, not because his data is necessarily bad, but because his model of humanity is inaccurate, according to Scripture. So if you're following all that, our biogenic theory fails to show itself to be valid for the reasons that we talked about there. 
Now let me shock you with this next one. Um, making sure you're awake, making sure you're awake. Uh, electroconvulsive therapy. We used to call this shock therapy. And you're thinking, man, didn't we give this up in 1955? Uh, no, we didn't. We modernized it. I say we modernized it. Uh, a, a relatively small minority in the psychological community has breathed new life into what has, was seen as an archaic and even ethically problematic therapeutic intervention. So it's today it's called ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, uh, the old word shock therapy. And essentially what happens today is a patient under usually some sort of local anesthesia is um, hooked up with electrodes to a computer-controlled system that targets certain brain circuits with electric currents with a aim to induce little mini-seizures. Uh, a seizure, of course, is when your brain has an electrical abnormality and um, uh, and and this is done intentionally, thinking that the introduction of these mini seizures in certain regions of the brain is designed to heal and fix some sort of you know problem with uh, thinking, emotion, or behavior. Um, so there we are, right? ECT is alive and well. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think we're trying to shock it back into rhythm. Um, and again, I asked Dr. Roberts, I don't know if that's a, a good medical analogy or not, but um, I, I think more than, the, more than the shocking the heart back into pumping, I think it's more aligned with these are smaller electrical currents that are designed to disrupt the normal electrical circuitry of certain parts of the brain um, as a means to fixing it. You know, we understand God made the brain amazing, right? I, I grew up in the 80s, you know, so I'm an 80s kid. I, I like 80s rock, and I, I never wore my hair like that. But, you know, I, I did have a denim jacket, and anyway, we won't talk about that. But, um, but no, and, and remember, you know, the, the, the decade of the brain, the 80s, we're going to learn, you know, brain science. And, and then they got to 1989, they went, uh, we're not making progress like we thought. 90s, the decade of the brain, right? The 90s are going to be the decade of the brain. And by the time the turn of the century came around, it was like, you know, we're not going to understand the brain. Even when the genome, pro you remember when the genome project finished and they, they successfully mapped the human genome and, and it's like, man, we, now we've got, uh, we got nucleotide sequences for the whole genetic code and this is great and this is going to revolutionize medicine. And, and really, when you read the summaries of the guys that were on the, the cutting edge of that, what they'll tell you is, we learned a lot, but it actually created even more questions than we thought to ask. The brain is fascinating. It's a chemical electrical system. It's electrical, like, you know, your cell phone is electrical, but it's electrical in terms of chemical reactions. And you remember in chemistry class that, that electricity and chemistry can actually go together in this fascinating way. And and it's like, okay, so we're going to try to capitalize on that by introducing electrical currents from out from the outside to sort of fix electrical problems on the inside. And uh, I can only come up with one strength. And, and that is there's some research that suggests it can be moderately effective in some mental disorders. This is usually saved as a last treatment. Um 
a lot of problems. There are a lot of healthcare professionals that don't believe it's ethical, even though it's done in a more medically responsible way today. It fails to acknowledge the spiritual, physical nature of persons, kind of like biogenic. And it's based on a completely secular view of persons that fails to acknowledge the most important realities like God, worship, the gospel, Jesus, sin, salvation, and sanctification. So, um, and I don't think people are banging down the door to go to ECT. In fact, it, it, it's kind of the it's kind of the last you know the last thing we uh, we go to. Okay. Um, So uh, the, the next one here, um, counseling exam 17. This is interesting. Okay. Hang on a second. So this is actually the old counseling exam 17. Um, anybody have the actual counseling exam with them? Okay, can I see that real quick? Thank you. Well, that's theology. Do you have that in the counseling exam? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> okay. So, this is uh, my fault. So, here's what happened um, we retooled the counseling exam. And I need to go back and check because this is actually the, the old material here that we need to remedy for you. So this question, uh, where is it here? This question about um, the strategy to help Tim and Emily think biblically about diagnosis, his diagnosis and their use of bipolar illness language actually got removed. So can I borrow that again? Okay. So you guys aware of this? Okay. What's that? Yeah, so here's what we're going to do. Um, you need to know that, uh, let me just help here. Okay, so counseling exam number 17, this was the old question here. Describe as fully as you were able your strategy to help Tim and Emily think biblically about his diagnosis and their use of bipolar language. Okay, that's the old, old 17, okay? That is now the new number 20. Okay? So here's what number 20 says. It's, it's really the same question. It's just worded differently. But you need to know, if you have already started answers on the old exams, you can finish them. Okay? If you haven't started, you're going to have to deal with the new counseling exam questions. Okay? And I'll try to... If you're confused by that or you're not sure, come talk to me afterward and, and I'll... I'll help if I can. Yeah, so this is the new one. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you start, if your counseling exam 17 says that, finish it, submit it, and they will accept it. If you have not started your ACBC exams, you will have to use the new counseling exam where this is actually number 20. Here's what it says. Tim believes his recent psychiatric diagnosis is a lifelong disease and is to blame for his behavior toward his wife. Write out your word-for-word -word response to Tim on this matter. In your response, be sure to address the themes of biblical responsibility and self-control. Okay? So it, it's, it's really the same question, but in your answer, you're going to have to write it as you talking to Tim rather than just an abstract answer. 
Okay. So let's look at with that qualification. Let's look at the material here. Okay. Let's talk about psychological labels. Um, we recognize, we talked about this earlier with depression, that uh, psychological labels um, reflect how mental health professionals view these sort of disorders, right? The diagnosis is made by a medical health professional, mental health professional like a, psychiat a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a family doctor. Uh, it's it's uh, diagnosed on the basis of patient-provided symptoms. And um, the DSM-5, which is the current Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, provides the diagnostic criteria for making these diagnoses. And even though that's true, uh, what we're talking about is behavior, symptoms, not the cause, and there's no general agreement in DSM about why these behaviors or symptoms occur. So one of the things we want to ask is, how is your counselee's diagnosis made? And that may be something to ask Tim in your answers to say, can you help me understand how were you diagnosed? Were there blood tests run? Were there uh, imaging done? And, um, and chances are there was imaging and there was blood tests, but not to make a psychological diagnosis, but why? Why would they do that? to rule out a medical disease of some sort, right? So the disease model of mental disorders theorizes that mental disorders are the result of purely physiological factors. This puts us back to biogenic and to depression from this morning. It's the same sort of um, uh, faulty materialistic view of persons. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, um, it, I, I haven't heard it in a while, but I was listening to the radio right here in North Texas, and there was an addiction ministry up you know, somewhere in the Metroplex, and their big tagline was this, our program is successful because we treat addiction as a brain disease, not as a result of a lack of willpower. That's their marketing scheme. And I, well, that's reflective of the disease model. I went on their website and just looked at like what they actually do, and they totally don't believe that. Um, they do all sorts of talk, psychological, therapeutic interventions that, are not consistent with just a brain disease model. So apparently that was more marketing than actual philosophy. But uh, anyway, again, a biblical analysis. We looked at these verses already. We know that people are inner man and outer man, not just outer man, right? So uh, we would want to help Tim to understand that his diagnosis was made using certain criteria, but what he was hearing about why he behaves the way he does is built on faulty anthropology. What he was hearing was this, right? Oh, you got a brain disease. That's why you do the bad things you do. What he needs to hear is, no, you don't have a brain disease. You have a heart problem. And uh, we have a great savior that can help you with that. Um, so we're, we're trying to help them understand that... Um, you know, the, the idea of a disease model is really built on faulty anthropology and we would want to bring his understanding of his behavior in line with spiritual truth. So you remember in the case study, Tim and Emily, uh, he has gotten violent in the home a couple of times. Uh, he went nuts one time and then I think the, the thing that really was kind of the, the icing on cake was he picked up a phone and threw it at Emily, trying to hit her, and she ducked and it missed her, but it put a hole in the wall. And um, 
that led them to seek quote-unquote professional help and they eventually came uh, to you as a biblical counselor. So how are we going to help Tim think about his diagnosis? How do we help him think about uh, the, the medical language being used in light of his behavior? Well, some of the things we, we want to do as we work through those issues of anthropology is we want to help him to see that a biblical view of people and thus a biblical view of sinful behavior is really the issue and how to address it. We must also challenge the disease model of mental disorders even though it is widespread and popular. So, so let's do that. Let's turn in our Bibles and uh, look back at um, James chapter 4. And we could use any number of different examples here, guys. But, you know, if you talk to Tim, remember, you have to write out a word-for-word answer to Tim about uh, how to think about his diagnosis and these mental health issues and especially address issues related to spiritual responsibility and self-control. Well, look at James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. Now stop right there. We would want to help Tim to see that quarrels and conflicts are sourced in our pleasures that wage war within us. You say, what does that word, what does that word pleasure mean? Uh, what does the ESV say? Passions. Yeah, passions. I think uh, there's another one might be desires. Desires is a little bit of a confusing, I think that might be New King James, that's a little bit confusing because he uses a different word in verse 2 for desires or lusts. But this word pleasure is is really um, interesting. It means the feeling you get when you get what you want. The feeling you get when you get what you want. What's your favorite restaurant? Favorite restaurant? Chick-fil-A, okay, and if and if we were to go on a field trip to Chick-fil-A, what would you order that would be your favorite? Chick-fil-A nuggets. Chick-fil-A nuggets, and do you Chick-fil-A sauce? Uh, the Polynesian. Polynesian, you're a Polynesian guy, okay, all right. <laughs> and are you a fry guy, a salad guy? Uh, fries. And you top it off with your favorite beverage, which is? Yeah, the lemonade. The lemonade, yeah, I agree, the lemonade is pretty good. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We got a spiritual guy. Okay, now think about that. So if we go to Chick-fil-A, favorite restaurant, and we order nuggets, favorite food, Polynesian sauce, favorite sauce, top it off with fries and a lemonade, my buddy here is doing really, really well, isn't he? I mean, he, he, is, he is feeling great. Why? Because he's experiencing the feeling of getting what he wants. And we love that, don't we? It may not be Chick-fil-A. It might be a steak. It might be your favorite salad. It might be whatever. It might be your favorite exercise or your favorite movie to watch. But we love getting our way. And James says, that's the problem. We are in love with getting our way. And those passions, those desires to self-gratify get us into trouble. Why? Because let's say... Let's say uh, he jumps in, in the car and says, Hey, Mom, uh, can we go to Chick-fil-A tonight? 
and Michael Mom says, um, actually, we're going to go home and have salad tonight. Now, now we're back in James 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts in your minivan? I mean, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts? It is not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members. So the whole way home, he's going, I know you wouldn't do this because you love your mom and you're going to follow her, but, you, you know, he, he might be saying, man, Chick-fil-A would be so much better. I mean, Chick-fil-A would be, a, what, a salad, really? A salad? Do I really want to do that? And, and um you know, and kind of grumbling and kind of bad attitude. And, and again, I know you wouldn't do this, but, you know, you're driving and the whole way. And that, that's the problem. It's because we all love getting our way too much. And James says, you know what the source of your quarrels and conflicts is? It's that you're in love with getting your way. You love self-gratification. You say, well, how does that play out? Look at verse two. You want something and you don't get it. So you commit murder. You're envious and you can't obtain. So you fight and quarrel. See, that's the real problem. The, the problem is not, I like Chick-fil-A, I like nuggets, I like Polynesian sauce. The, the problem is, I want that too much. And I'm willing to get angry when I don't get it. I might be willing to sin in order to get it. I might enjoy it t- so much to the degree that uh, I'm a very unpleasant person to be around when I'm not getting my nuggets. Okay. What's that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that, that, that's what anger does. A- anger says, anger we say is God's warning system, I'm wanting something too much, right? So that, that good desire for nuggets, not a bad desire, if that becomes a higher desire than glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, well, now we say, well, those nuggets have displaced God, so to speak. And, but it's fueled by this, this passion we have to gratify our desires, right? So when we're talking to Tim and writing the answer, we're saying... The problem is not your brain chemistry. The problem is not this this diagnosis. The problem is you, like me, are in love with getting your way and you're lusting after these things that when Emily doesn't do what you want her to do or she doesn't respond the way you're wanting to respond, you react in sinful anger toward her. But the problem is a heart issue, not a medical issue. And then, you know, the, the question asks asks us specifically to deal with the issue of self-control. Well, if we keep reading in the passage, we look down at verse 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How do we fix it? Verse 7, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And he will exalt you. That's repentance. That's a description of repentance. That's what needs to happen. And as we help Tim to repent, which is the need, what would we expect? Well, we parallel with Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit is producing as we're looking to God for repentance and faith is the fruit of the Spirit is is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay. So as Tim repents and walks with God, we expect a growing self-control. And that self-control that God commands of us is, um, is really the need, right? Tim needs to learn to control himself, uh, empowered by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. 
Okay, so you're going to write out your answer like you're talking to Tim directly. So it's a first-person answer as you dismantle what we think about labels and psychological diagnoses and a materialistic viewpoint, and we're replacing it with a text like this that is showing him this is where your anger really comes from, this is how repentance looks, and self-control is God's, um, God's will for you. Okay? Well, let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you again for time and your word. And these are, even though these are case studies, we know they reflect real life scenarios with real people. So give us grace to master these truths, to practice them in our own hearts, and then to grow in skill to be able to help people like Tim and Emily and others that are caught up in in 12-step and CBT and and all these other interventions. Uh, Lord, help us to be charitable, but also to have biblical wisdom uh, to help people to see that, that your way and your word Uh, is a better way, a a superior way than anything the world can offer. Uh, We're grateful for your love and care for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.